Welcome to the Glasgow Baptist Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Erdie Carter. We want to help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. Amen. Thank you, Greg, choir, praise team. Also, if you see me jump around, there was a wasp flying around, so hopefully I don't get stung. But it might be funny for you guys, so... Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be hanging out there today, and then we'll talk a little bit before we get into it. Matthew chapter 16. And so in 1971, Billy Graham was leading one of his crusades. And so during this ministry, God saw it fit that Billy Graham would speak to uh, millions of people in our country and then outside of our country. Um, he would go from New York City to Chicago to Moscow preaching the gospel. And so over these years, he would encounter millions of people and thousands of them will come to know Jesus. And so through his preaching, God was moving and God was saving. Billy Graham was a great man, great teacher of the, wor teacher of the word, but he was only who he was because of who Jesus is. And so during this crusade in 1971 in Chicago, there was an estimation of 12,000 decisions made to follow Jesus during a 10-day event. These decisions were made by men, women, and children of all ages, all races, and all backgrounds. And so before coming to know Jesus, before they met him, they, they had to know who he was. So who is Jesus? That's a question that we're going to be answering today. That's a question that we're going to be asking today. And we're going to see about a man who answered the same question. So think to yourself, if someone asked you who Jesus was, what would you say? How would you answer this question? Would he be just a great teacher? Maybe a prophet? Would he be a miracle worker? A moral man? How we answer the question, who is Jesus, reflects what we believe. And so today we'll be in Matthew 16, where Jesus asks his followers, his disciples, who am I? And we'll see what Peter confesses for the group. And so if you're in Matthew 16, we're going to begin in verse 13 and go all the way to verse 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, and whatever you, you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. And so look at that first verse in chapter 13. Uh, we have to talk about Caesarea Philippi. And so in the New Testament, Jesus moved in specific ways. He went to certain places at specific times. He just wasn't traveling around Judea randomly. Uh, we know that he and his disciples did a little journey to Samaria. And so on this journey, they encounter a woman at the well. And so during this time, uh, people would go to the well uh, early in the morning when it, when, when it wasn't so hot and they would gather their water. 
But we know about this story is that the woman at the well was there around midday. And so if Jesus wanted to have a crowd, if Jesus wanted to encounter all these people, don't you think he would go in the morning? Don't you think he would have got to the well early? But he got there in the afternoon. Jesus moved intentionally and on purpose. He knew that this woman was going to be there in the afternoon, so he went at that time. He moved with purpose. It's the same in this story. So the disciples and Jesus reach Caesarea Philippi at this time because in Jesus' ministry, he's going from uh, performing miracles, teaching the gospel, and he's turning his focus towards Jerusalem, meaning that he's seeing the cross that he will soon face. And so Caesarea Philippi is an area about 25 miles or so north of the Sea of Galilee, and it has been labeled a place of pagan worship, which is not great. And so during this time, uh, people would come to this area to sacrifice animals, to burn offerings, uh, to give uh, false gods an offering and sacrifices. To this day, you can go to this area and explore caves, and archaeologists have unearthed bones from where these animal sacrifices were made. They found coins, and they have seen the places where these false gods once sat. And so the influence of the Greco-Roman culture was everywhere during this time, and we definitely see that in the pagan worship. And so in this pagan worship center, people would worship false gods such as Baal, the Greek god Pan, and even Caesar himself. This was not a holy place. This was a place of darkness and a place of lostness. And so remember how Jesus moved specifically and intentionally with the woman at the well. He's moving intentionally at this place. So look at the question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who is the Son of Man? This is one of Jesus' favorite titles about himself. He's looking at the people that love him the best, and they say, who does the world say that the Son of Man is? Jesus is asking this question because he's going to set the scene for what's coming next. Jesus brought the disciples to this place at this time in his ministry because Jesus is going to be identified as the Christ as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he's going, to be, he's, going to be, uh, proc- he's going to be proclaimed this Savior in the face of pagan worship. This is demonstrating that the kingdom of Jesus is far above Baal, far beyond the Greek god Pan, and far beyond Caesar. Look at, the, look at verse 14. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so this answer, that, the answer to Jesus' question, is the common view of the world's view of Jesus. That he was just a prophet, that he was just a great guy. Many people around Jesus saw his prophetic role. He was uh, performing uh, miracles, and he was performing and uh, completing prophecies that were in the Old Testament. And so thinking that Jesus was John the Baptist, uh, none of these really made me laugh, but that one kind of made me laugh. So how can Jesus be John the Baptist if Jesus and John the Baptist were together alive? Also, if Jesus is John the Baptist and John the Baptist baptized Jesus, how do you baptize yourself? Like, do you have to dunk yourself really quickly and then stand up and then act like you're another person? That's silly. Also, if you turn a few pages to the left, John the Baptist is beheaded. So how is Jesus, John the Baptist, if John the Baptist is dead? Saying that Jesus was a spirit of Elijah is a pretty good guess. Because the miracles that Jesus performed and the miracles that Elijah performed are pretty similar. 
That's a good guess. Thinking that Jesus was a prophet like Jeremiah, pretty good guess. Jeremiah preached on the coming judgment that was, that was going to happen. Jesus did the same. That's a pretty good guess. These guesses are not ridiculous for the people that are watching because Jesus, what he was performing is aligning with the Old Testament. But look at verse 15. And it says, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? With this question, Jesus is changing the whole story. Jesus is asking the group of people that love him most, I know what the world says. I know what the world who hates me says. But what are you, the people that I love, the people that you love me, what do you say? Think about your life. Think about your closest friends, your family, the people you really, really care about, and the people that really, really care about you. They know the real you. They know what you like. They know what you dislike. They know who you like and who you dislike. They can probably speak on your behalf and you would be okay with it. I'm the same way. I have a group of very close friends. I care what they think about me. I care who they say I am. I care about what you think of me and what you say about me because you're my church family. Jesus is looking at the people he loves most. The disciples have already told him what the world says. Jesus asked the whole group, who do you say I am? This question matters. This is a turning point of the story. Jesus knows the world hates him. It's not, it's not a, a hidden fact that the world hates him. He knows. Think about the scene that's, that's taking place, this place of pagan worship. In this area, how does Jesus know the world hates him? He's standing in a place of false gods, of people that would rather worship a statue, a dead God who's not real, than the Son of God. It's not hard to see that the world hates him when Jesus is standing in the place of hate. He can see the idols being worshipped because he took the disciples to this place to ask this question. The world's going to have a much different view of Jesus than you if you're a believer or better. If you follow Jesus, you cannot have the same view of him as the world. This is why Jesus asked his disciples, because they have seen the miracles, they've seen the glory, they've seen everything unimaginable, and the big crescendo of all of that, Jesus says, who am I? If Jesus asked you this question, what would you say? How would you answer it? How you answer this question reflects what you believe, how you answer this question reflects your heart, and how you answer this question reflects your faith. So if Jesus asked you, what would you say? If someone in town asked you, what would you say? Oh, Jesus, he's great. He's a moral teacher. He's great. He's a very nice guy. He gets me through some stuff in life. He's got some great ideas and some pretty decent rules. I'm going to follow a couple of them. If you want to have that understanding of Jesus, if you want to have that view of Jesus, that's fine. That's okay. Just as long as you want to have the same view as an unbeliever, and just as long as you want to have the same view as people who hate God.
You cannot call yourself a Christian. You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus if you have the same view as the world. Who is Jesus? Look at verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How would you answer this question? Would you answer like Peter? This is the first time the disciples have called Jesus the Christ. Peter, using the term living God, is huge. Remember, they're at a certain place at a certain time. They're in a place of pagan worship. They're in a place of dead, false gods looking at the living God in flesh. Peter declares in the face of evil, in the face of wickedness, in the face of all the false gods that the long-awaited Messiah is here. Notice that Peter doesn't say you're a great teacher. Notice how Peter doesn't say you're a moral God. Notice how Peter doesn't say you're a prophet. He says you're the Christ. All of history points to this point. All that has happened has, has come right to here. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. All the Old Testament is pointing to the Christ. Now he's identified. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. This declaration goes against all that the world will say because the world doesn't have a problem with Jesus. Just as long as he's a great teacher, just as long as he's a moral guy, just as long as he's a miracle worker, just as long as he's a prophet, but as soon as you say that Jesus is the Son of God, that's when the problem happens. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah who will save the world. This place where Jesus is declared the Christ uh, reminds me of uh, uh, my two journeys over to China. Um, I got to do a couple trips over to China, and it was a lot of fun. Um, uh, I, have, I have my visa until 2025, so I'm hoping I may get to go back before, but I don't know if that will work out. And so, yeah, in case you're wondering, I did not blend in well in China. Um, this has nothing what, we're, what I'm talking about, but there was a town, and it was called Baita, and it loosely translates to White Tower, and so being funny, or trying to be funny, when we would go into these places and go into these people's homes, they'd ask me what my name was. I said, my name is Baita. And so they, then they knew what it kind of meant, and so it was great. And so uh, I got to experience some pretty big cities like uh, Beijing and Shanghai, and I visited some places in the Himalayas where just mountains with a few houses. It's very rural. We stayed at this guy's house. His name was Mung, and we stayed there for a week. And it was... I think we're the tallest house on the mountain. And nothing else was above us, what we thought. And so it's very rural. They're, they're walnut farmers. They grow everything. And so one day, we were, we were looking out in the driveway, and there had been a dense fog. And so we didn't really see the top of our mountain. And so we finally see the top of the mountain, and there's something up there. And of course, if there are visitors, the villagers want to walk us around. They want us to go all the way to the top of the mountain. So it's about 1,500 feet 
straight up a mountain, took forever. I got to the mountain, I'm laying there. I'm like, all right, I'm on the top of the mountain, Jesus, take me now. And so um, we get up there, and it was a beautiful hike. But what turned from beauty turned uh, to something very numbing is that there was a temple up there. And so this temple was filled with 10-foot-tall statues of uh, the only god that I uh, recognized was Buddha. And so he's pretty distinct. And there's a thousand other statues there that these people would go and worship. They tell us all about it. They, they would tell us that most of the time they don't even believe in these gods, but they're afraid uh, if they don't bow down then something bad will happen to them. They worship out of fear. We stayed there for a couple weeks and uh, we would travel around trying to find people of peace, people that God has put in our path to share the gospel with. And so that, uh, at the temples, it was a great time to bridge the uh, conversation to the gospel. And so I'd ask them about their God. And then we'd say, well, can I tell you about mine? And so um, people were giving money, burning incense to these false gods in the most remote village in the Himalayas. Am I still on? Yep. It was different than what I have ever experienced. And so this is not much different than what's happening in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is with his disciples. He looks around in the face of all these false dead gods, and he says, who am I? This is why God is so important is because Jesus is in the face of all these false gods. And so if Jesus is different than all of these false gods, the idea that Jesus is alive shreds any evidence that these false gods matter. These false gods are dead. Baal's dead. Pain is dead. Caesar's dead. How do they stand in comparison to the living, true God? Look at verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus asked this question, Who am I to you? He's talking to the whole group, but Simon, who was voted the for um, the disciples, for the disciples, and um, Jesus is looking at Peter as the spokesperson for the disciples and um, I'm trying to get back on track. And so uh, Peter's the spokesperson. Jesus looks at him. He spoke for the whole group, but Jesus answers Simon specifically. He says, uh, Simon Barjona. This is basically Simon's full name, showing where he's from, his culture. And it's meaning that uh, Simon knew that Jesus was a son of God only because... God had a special revelation for him. And so this proclamation from Peter that Jesus is the Messiah lays the whole foundation of the, of the church. And so look at verse 18. And it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so this verse has been debated for centuries. Uh, does it mean that, Pete, that the church is built on Peter? Does it mean that Peter was the first pope? Does it mean that Peter is the reason why we are here? There's a few different views of this verse. And so uh, 
without going into it all, the Greek and Aramaic views of the word rock and Peter kind of, people try to use those interchangeably, which one's masculine, one's feminine. They don't mean the same thing. So the rock here is not Peter. People think that the rock is the confession of Jesus is Lord or that the rock is Christ and his teaching. This rock that Jesus is talking about is the confession that Peter had that, Peter, that Jesus is the Christ. Biblically, we know that anything built upon man will fail. We know that anything built upon Peter will die. How do we know that? Is Peter alive? No. Peter's not here. Peter's gone. Peter's dead. If the church was built on Peter, then it wouldn't be here. The church is built on the confession that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so uh, that is what builds the church, is the unification of believers coming under that confession that Jesus is Christ. The church is a who? um, Hopefully you remember it. I got to preach on uh, the importance of the church, and we learned that the church is a who? The church is a people. The church is not a what? It's not a place. The church is not a physical place. It's not a building of stone or wood. And so in building the church, when Jesus is talking here, he's not, don't think about him as drawing in the dirt, drawing some plans for the church. Oh, we're going to have some red carpet here and we're going to have some white walls. No, he's not building a temple. He's not putting together buildings. He's not forming a steeple. He's not creating church pews, but he's looking forward to the communities and the congregations that would one day worship him. Nothing in this world or the next will overthrow the church. Nothing will prohibit Jesus from building his church. And so we kind of know what the church was built under, what the church was created for. Now we have to talk about what the church was not created for. The church was never created to be a white building with red carpet and a tall steeple. It was never created to be something that was put on a to-do list. It was never created to be treated like a social event. It was never created to be something to do just because you've always done it. The church was not created to be that that little special place of something of tradition. The church was never a place where you'd have a special spot on on a pew that no one else could sit on. The church was never created to be a a place of gossip, clicks, and judgment. The church was never created to be a status symbol that you could wave in your community. The church was never created to be a place where you could only be a consumer and not a producer in serving. The church was created by Jesus, for Jesus, under the gathering and the confession that Jesus is Lord. That is our responsibility and that is our command. I feel that we do a decent job of coming to a building. I feel that we do a decent job of uh, coming here, doing stuff. Going to our special seat. Going through the motions. But when it comes to actually being the church of Jesus Christ, we have so much work to do. So who is Jesus? The question that Jesus asks is directed to everyone. It's directed to you. It's directed to me. It's directed to the Christian and the non-Christian. 
This is, a, this is a question that you need to ask yourself every single day. This is a question I need to ask myself every single day. Wake up in the morning, ask myself, who is Jesus? If you ask this question every single day, this is what your life's going to be formed around. The little, the little task we have in life. If we have that question, who is Jesus? We know how to answer it. We can build our life around that. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a good teacher that you hear about once a week? Does he have a few, uh, few good ideas? Having the view of Jesus that he's just a prophet, that he's just a miracle worker, that he's just a helper, is no different than the people that hate him. So if you profess to be a Christian, who is Jesus? Is Jesus different? Standing in the place of Caesarea Philippi, looking at the statue of Baal and Caesar and Pan. Is Jesus different? Yes. yes. Because he's the son of the living God in the face of evil, in the face of these dead, false gods like Buddha or Allah. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, will affect everything about your life. It'll affect the way you act. It'll affect the way you speak and the way you think. Do we really and truly believe that Jesus is Lord? It's incredibly easy to say it. Oh, love Jesus. Love that guy. But what about when life's not going great? What about when life is tough? What about when you actually have to answer who is Jesus? It's super easy to say it, not so super easy to live it. Do you really believe that he is Lord? So there's two people that have to answer this question. There's a Christian and a non-Christian. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer here, you should be able to answer this question. Not, not because it's a test, but because it shows your devotion to him. And if you're a non-Christian, the way you answer this question affects eternity. With Jesus in paradise or something not so great. If you're in Christ, your eternity looks pretty good. And if you're not in Christ, not so much. So who is Jesus? Is he Lord? Is he a cool guy? If he's Lord, if you've accepted that, live it. If he's not Lord of your life, if you don't care of anything about Jesus, that's my plea today, is that if you don't know Jesus, come to know him. Jesus was sent here by God, his Father, to live a perfect, sinless life for you. Took your death, took your place on the cross, so that you could be reconnected with the Father. He's given this free grace of eternal life, this free mercy, and all you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is say yes to Jesus. And so today there's an opportunity to respond to that. There's a chance to go from looking at Jesus as just a cool guy 
to accepting, to accepting him as Lord over your whole life. As we close today, I'll be down front if you'd like to talk about how Jesus can be Lord of your life. If you need prayer, I'll be down here as well. Let us pray.